Welcome to Tripod, our travel retail-themed podcast series in association with the SEVA Group. I'm Martin Moody. I'm Roger Jackson. Roger, um, thanks for being with us. We've got a really interesting and different guest coming on the show in a few moments, but I think it would be really mischievous not to touch on the issue that's really dominating all our thoughts. It's also impacting our industry. And for the first time in a long time, it's not the global pandemic. It's the terrible uh, catastrophe, the human humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. Yeah, on both sides, I've got a lot of friends um, who are currently living in Moscow um, and actually are Russian. Some of my old team are there actually uh, from the Azure as well. And I'm hearing uh, not great stories coming out of there as in terms of the impact on them and then of course that's more financial hardship and then of course what we're seeing in Ukraine is unacceptable um, I don't care what nationality you are um, we don't we don't and we shouldn't see that um, in our day and age it's just really unacceptable and it needs to stop as soon as possible before I even get on to obviously the economic impact on some of our largest retailers, D3, heavily exposed in Russia, Heinemann are. Um, I saw uh, the operator at Ukraine, essentially the airports virtually destroyed. So from our industry as well, it's horrific. More flights obviously being cancelled from those countries and other countries. I was speaking to somebody from Moldova a few days ago who said that you know, ultimately, nobody wants to travel because they're worried about what will happen to their country. So uh, it needs to stop. It needs to stop now, Martin. And um, I hope that's what we see in the coming days. Uh, but unfortunately, I don't think that'll be the case. No, it's it, it's horrific. And we, we can only hope that some kind of sanity prevails and it comes to an early conclusion. Let's hope for guest. Uh, is a little different. He's known to be quite outspoken, um, a pretty interesting guy who I got to know, like many of us have got to know, uh, through the LinkedIn community uh, over, over the times of the pandemic. It's interesting how people come together and form bonds of friendship uh, without even meeting face to face during the pandemic, isn't it? So shall we bring him in? Yeah, let's do it. So this episode's special guest is Ian Kay. Operations Director at One Technology, an Israel-based company which uses technology to help airlines, airports, and travel retailers to grow ancillaries revenue. Ian's tagline I just saw on LinkedIn a few moments ago is connecting a world of travelers to the travel retail world, which I think is rather nice. Ian also owns and operates Air Traffic, so that's a middleware platform that directs consumer traffic from airlines and OTAs to online travel retail marketplace. Now, Ian is talking to us in Netanya in central Israel, not just reading about this place. It's a beautiful and historic region. It's not least for being the first declared city in the new state of Israel in December, 1948. Ian is a self-styled professional troublemaker who for the last few decades has worked, he says, to persuade businesses to do things differently. Now, if you want to see a really compelling example of that, take a look at an article we ran online yesterday about an experiential campaign that Ian and his company ran recently with the Spark Group of Comedies from Canada. 
um, for emerging UK no and low spirit brand Cleanco in United Airlines club lounges across four US airports. Now I mentioned that because this was no ordinary campaign. It's a great story. It ran through January and February during a still raging pandemic. The weather was awful. It focused on a, a nascent, well, brand new category, really, in real terms, and involved project experts across 10 time zones. So it's a great case study, and I think a brave one. We might touch on it during this chat. So with no further ado, Ian Kay, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Great to have you with us. Well, I'm going to hand over to my co-host, Roger. I think, Roger, you and Ian probably have more than a few things in common. So over to you. Hi Ian, how are you doing? Uh, it's great to, uh, great to see a fellow northerner. Exactly, I think that's where I'm going to start first if that's all right. So uh, as I found <laughs> out we're both from the same place, so growing up in Bury, Lancashire in the UK, uh, how was that and what was that like? Oh yeah, Whitefield to be absolutely specific, which due to various boundary changes became part of Greater Manchester, then was part of Bury Met. It was, it was leafy, it was suburban, it was incredibly comfortable and you know, my early life was spent grammar school boy. My, I think my father's accountant managed to fiddle the means test to get me some sort of assisted place. And, and it was in many ways the cradle of, of you know, contrarian Ian and the the place where the, the the ways that I um, went on to present myself in later life were formed, um, you know, you know, Barry Grammar School as well as anybody, local rivals, next door neighbours, and so forth. And it was a very establishment environment, um, and there were ways of doing things, and there were expectations placed upon you, and I. I think it's reasonable to say that the, the headmaster and his staff were not wild fans of mine. Um, and I, I think in my, in my last school report, they wrote home to my mother saying that this boy has a few too many opinions of his own and a little bit too much to say for himself. And I think that's pretty self-evident from this opening section. And he was right, but... Um, it was an environment which very much encouraged me to look at things in a particular way. And where I spotted things that really rankled or felt wrong, I spoke out. And sometimes that worked okay. Most of the time it, it definitely didn't. And um, as I say, that was the, the cradle of contrarianism. And I guess, um, I, I, obviously, I'm, as we've said, I'm from Bury as well, and I'm, uh, I, I live in the Middle East, I live in Dubai. The story of you ending up in Israel um, is one that definitely intrigues me, so please tell me how that happened, Manchester to Israel. <laughs> well, we're leading parallel lives, clearly, and I'm surprised that, you know, we're not more closely related. Okay, things, things that people don't know about Ian Kay. So I... I proposed to my wife on the first date. You know, we were sat in a apparently that's very normal. We were sat in a lovely restaurant, and you know, I was I was deeply enamoured, and I think I've written to my LinkedIn reader more than once 
you know, this is how it works. And I fell in love and I asked her out and, and, and then proposed to her all on the first date. And after we got that question out of the way, the follow-up question was, and what do you think about living in Israel? <laughs> so again, apparently that's perfectly normal line of questioning and a, an intro. But we both, we both had quite close connections to the country. Her dad had come out in 1948 and he built a kibbutz and, and, and there were family connections in the north of the country. And, you know, I'd had pretty strong views about, about living here at, at some point in my life. And I think that because we'd found each other and because we, I got two yeses, you know, I, I actually got two yeses at the dinner table. You know, so the marriage was set and the future was planned all within the, the space of, I think, the soup and the main course, which was fantastic. And <laughs> I know a lot of this can sound vaguely preposterous, but I assure you everything I've just told you is completely true. And then 25 years later, we actually got round to it. So this was a story somewhat in the making because as we, I guess we've seen ourselves in the most recent past, you know, events happen in your life and, and, and so forth. And then we had kids, two of them, and they left high school. And on the days they both left high school, they packed it back and came here, um, both to serve in the, in the army. Um, and we were left sat at this deserted table in the middle of Whitefield. And my wife's initial strategy was every time a basket of ironing needs doing in the center of Natanya, she'd get on a plane and rush here with the iron. And, and, and that proved to be you know, financially inviable after a while. So we made the decision, you know, we were still, we had always maintained a high level of motivation to come here. Um, and so 25 years after that first conversation in that restaurant on that fateful night, we rock up here with, you know, a song on our lips and a hope in our hearts and an ambition to make a success of it. And eight years later, I have to say that it's been an amazing experience. Um, I don't know the extent to which Dubai and, and, and Israel compare, but I've described, I've described this country as a Disneyland for entrepreneurs. And it is. It, it just it suited somebody with my disposition and my particular motivation. Yeah, I'm very lucky. I've spent, I've been able to spend a lot of time in uh, Israel myself, and it's a beautiful country, very different to Dubai, as you can imagine, but absolutely stunning. And the amount of people who've gone on holiday to Tel Aviv specifically on my recommendation in the UK, I could probably, I've probably sent 30, 40 people there on holiday, but it's a fantastic place. If anyone is listening and they've never been, they must go to Tel Aviv on holiday and obviously travel to all of the, the other touristy locations around uh, around Israel. But what, what a fantastic place. Both lifestyle, people, the way people are, the health. It's amazing, um, Ian. So I can see why you uh, why, why you made that move. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's certainly on my bucket list. Uh, as I was telling Ian just before the call, Roger, it's one of the few countries um, one of the very few countries worldwide I haven't, I haven't been to and I, 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 long, I long to go there. And um, of course, now, I think one of the magical things that's happened in life 
is that you can go from where you are yeah. to visit to visit Ian, and Ian can come from where he is to visit you in the UAE, and that's a that's a beautiful development, I think, in in in, yeah. in, term, in terms of income. And I think uh, Martin, we've got to give a shout out to Evelyn, Danos, and uh, Gary, uh, old friends of I think both of us. So big shout out to those guys from James Richardson as well, because all my times there were with those guys. So uh, yeah, big shout out to all of those guys as well. Uh, again, I was talking to Ian before the show, and, I, and, and he was telling me about the uh, Israeli whiskey industry. I didn't know there was one. Uh, yeah, I, certainly, I, I certainly knew there was a, a wine industry. I've had I've had great wines with Gary and Evelyn, um, with uh, with the, the Felich family from Duty Free Americas. Um, I've drunk some extraordinary Israeli wines. So there's a whole lot of stuff to be discovered there. So uh, maybe you and I'll jump over. We'll do the next tripod. Over, uh, over in Israel. I've got a big balcony, lots of chairs. And believe me, Martin, your, your absence has been noted by the <laughs> residents here. And, and as a, I, I have said, said to Martin, you know, let's, let, let's create the parallel worlds and, and, and just join me here. I'm delighted to host you on the balcony. We'll do a show. That's good. I'm with it. Bring a high factor. You'll li- at least a factor 30. Martin, factor 60. Very large hat. Very large hat. Apparently, if you apply it twice, you're bulletproof. So it's 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 all good. I think so. One thing I did want to touch on, Ian, you mentioned it, and I I know you've been. I've read a few articles of yours where you quote quote Israel being like the Disneyland for an entrepreneur. I actually say something a bit similar in the Middle East, specifically in the free zones. Uh, But could you just sort of give a bit more context of why you see it that way. I agree with you, by the way, completely, but would you just give your view of someone who lives in Israel, you know, why that is the case? Very much so. I think you and I have come from a very um, similar background as we've identified. And, and within that background, there's a very conservative and conventional expectation of us and, and pathways that are set out to achieve it. And we go to school and we, we go to university and then we, we, gain an entry-level position in a company based on our graduation and we follow a, a, a risk-free or a relatively risk-free navigation through our careers um, and, and maybe touch senior management after 20 years in that particular uh, pursuit of uh, you know, success and then retire and play some golf and do whatever it is we do after that. And, and that's a very normal way of thinking about things in, in, in the places that we've come from. But here, it's a very different culture. And, and in, in schools here, it seems to me that rather than emphasizing the ability to do your sums and, and conjugate French verbs and, and you know, know the names of the rivers and the mountains, there is a, a, a process of convincing kids that when they leave school, they can be creators. And fearlessly so, and in a in, and the environment in which they operate will support them taking their destinies in their own hands and creating and building businesses and attempting things, and not to be scared if it fails, because there are support networks around them who will provide angel funding or VC funding to um, promote what seem to be logical businesses. Uh, the use of tech is encouraged, obviously, and, 
and the startup nation is, is called that for a reason. And it is because groups of people understand that the pathways open to them go way beyond those of the convention that we understand. And there's very little fear here. And it's not uncommon to see groups of people leaving school and, and doing the military service and coming out of it and going straight into a high-tech startup in an incubator, an accelerator run by a sympathetic source. Um, and lots of them fail. But what's very common is after an initial failure, they'll learn lessons fast and they'll start again. And there's an encouragement to start again because it equates to job creation. It equates, equates to um, almost like a, 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 a codependence, an internal codependence. So we'll build our futures within this country off our own intelligence and off our own commercial capabilities. And so the idea that thinking in a new way, using technologies in a different way, innovating and taking risks and experimenting is the norm. It's a quite a, a normal part of business life here. And you only need to go into one of the Tel Aviv high rise. And as soon as you get above the 12th floor and you take the lift up to the 58th, every, every single floor is populated by WeWork style office environments where groups of people have come together to, to implement these practices. And and it is entirely the norm. And for somebody like me, who is um, predisposed to that way of thinking and to looking and challenging status quo, that's why I describe this as a Disneyland, because all around you, there are rides that you want to participate in and go on and, and go on more than once, um, because they're entirely sympathetic to the way you think about things. And I'm not sure... You know, I would ever have been, you know, I went to university, I did a law degree, and that was mostly hiding from life. And the idea of living some sort of chalk-striped life in a very linear way was never really particularly suitable for me. And you know, I wasn't a very studious character either. So, you know, it, it was revelatory to see the alternatives, you know, to peer behind the curtain and see the ways that things could happen. And that's certainly my experience of having been here. And obviously, as Martin said, the Abraham Accords have opened up brand new doors and encouraged regional cooperations between you and me, our, our abilities to come and see each other directly without circuitous routes and improbable bureaucracies and, and you know, political incidents. It's liberating. And it won't be the end of it. I, I, I honestly believe that a, a, a domino has fallen and other dominoes will certainly follow and, and we've seen it with Bahrain and, and, and Morocco and, and, and Sudan to an extent and, and I really feel that this is a blueprint that's being created for cooperation and collaboration regionally and it's only got to be good for us and, and you've just you know, you're, you're a participant in uh, the Middle Eastern uh, duty-free associations activities and it must be exciting to be around at this time, to see blockades falling, to see barriers being broken down. And this is the way really it should be. And, and you know, the hideous irony of it is the, the events of the, on the other side of the world where the exact 
opposite appears to be taking place, but we're clearly leading the way. And, and, and more of the same, if you please. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And it is fantastic. And I think the similarities between, obviously because of geography and history, the similarities between the countries are that they are very, very similar in the way they do business, the way they are, the way family is, everything. So for two countries, you know, we see enough conflicts in the world where actually the, the two different countries or two different uh, continents are so different, but they're so similar. They should they should be neighbours and it should be uh, um, there should be cooperation and there should be uh, goodwill as well. And I think that's where we are now. Um, and I think what's nice to see is I see it from both sides. It's such a shock here now being in a hotel and seeing a group of um, you know Israeli tourists. You know, and it brings such a smile on your face, and they're enjoying Dubai, and I'm sure it goes the other way as well. So it's been fantastic. Well, it certainly does, and I I saw a, a a lot of footage of trade delegations going both ways and arriving at the airports and seeing the flags of both countries and the national anthems of country, both countries, and the delegates from both countries warmly welcome each other and 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 respecting each other's national anthems. And, and believe me when I say this, because I'm, I guess I'm slightly older than you. You're looking a lot better than me anyway. But I never saw this. I didn't see it coming. It, it was, it was a shock. It came out of the blue, and it was it, little short of miraculous. When your expectation is skewed so dramatically, and for the good, and you know, I'm very grateful for it, and and I hope that we'll all reap. Some very significant benefits from it. Yeah. I, I'm like you, and I that you. I could have said ten things that I would have thought would have happened before that. Uh, so I, I was completely shocked. And you know, without getting too deep into politics, it's one of the things the Trump administration absolutely, you know, can hang their hat on. There's a lot of things that they probably can't, um, but absolutely to deliver the. Um, that agreement was just fantastic. I would agree with that completely. I would agree with that. Um, changing gears slightly. So tell us a bit about your business, because I see you you very, um, as I am, um, you're on social media as in terms of LinkedIn a lot. Um, I see a lot about you. I see a lot about your businesses. But tell us how you got into travel retail. And I guess, and tell us a bit about your business, one technology, air traffic, something yeah. To understand just a bit more, not only, I'm sure if I've got those thoughts, I'm sure everyone who's listening also has as well. Oh, so does my wife. You know, she asks me these questions. <laughs> all the time. What the hell are you doing? And I think thinking about that question, which is a good one, I've got to frame this in a particular way to make my my career look planned and, and linear and appropriate, rather than some chaotic and haphazard journey into lunacy. So. There is a logic to it, and I'll, I'll, I'll start. My, my background um, in the 90s and, and into the 2000s is outdoor advertising. I worked as a, a consultant for JC Deco globally and designed and helped them design a, a range of differentiating advertising um, methods using technology to engage with an audience. Um, and the differentiators that we created for them enabled them to create media first in all of their, their spaces in the outdoor sector, whether it be roadside or trackside, and also uh, in airports. 
JC the Co hold a great many global contracts uh, to be the outdoor, the um, advertising partner in airport environments. And so a lot of the tools that I was using, interactive digital media and experimenting with, with Bluetooth and iBeacons and NFC um, and, and, and mobile communications, the nascent VR and AR technologies, which had all been deployed in very successfully in outdoor environments, also worked really well in, in airport uh, arena. And that, that took me for the first time into, into airports. And then there was a kind of an intersection where I started thinking, and, and, and again, this is exactly the, the common thread that runs through me. What else can we do with this stuff? And I'd had uh, a very good relationship with Manchester Airport Group. And there were a number of conversations that I had, which made me realize that they had their own specific challenges in terms of things like passenger engagement, um, retail marketing, and so forth. And I started looking at techniques that had been employed, certainly in the outdoor arena, and the extent to which they could be employed um, as tools to address specific challenges in the airport environment. So that's the background, that's the landscape that, that allowed me to transition from sort of a pure outdoor advertising, out of home environment into a, an airport space and understand it. And that brought me into contact with a very different community and allowed me to sit at a table where conversations of a different nature were taking place. And the most interesting ones of them always took place between the ancillary guys and the retail strategists and the, the, the partnerships and alliances people. And they were, all, they were all talking about their own challenges that they faced. And you'd listen carefully, and, and, I, and I did. And, and a lot of the conversation was directed towards the, the ways that the traditional retail model was being eroded by the emergence of online purchasing and, and how bricks and mortar sales that, that you know, the, had created a captive audience in the airport space was kind of disappearing and what could they do about it and how could it work? And, and then they used words like collaboration. Um, and it was clear to me that, you know, they had their own interpretations of what that looked like. And they were talking about working together. And it was always, it was always, you know, the trinity of, of retailers and, and, and airports um, and, and the brands and so forth. And nobody was mentioning the airlines. Nobody was talking about the airlines. And this struck me as, as crazy because if you're looking at maintaining or perpetuating a certain ecosystem and a status quo, you've got to look at consumer acquisition. And where are the consumers? And how do you get to them? And, and the first contact with those people was the airlines. It, it, the conversation started with the airlines. The airlines controlled the conversation with the consumer from the very first point of contact, from the booking and, and, and all the way through to the travel day and then recycled. And, and I started talking to these people and asking them, you know, why aren't you talking to, why aren't you coming together and collaborating in this way? And you know, so there was this kind of look of horror. You know, we can't do that. They're competitors. They're competitors. They've got their own, no, we don't. And then that led to conversations about who owns who owns the passenger and was it them or was it the airline and, and you know we're quite happy and we just 
put our silo up and live within it and we can't go into theirs because theirs and this was crackers and all the time all the time they're hemorrhaging customers to the big online players and 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 wondering why only 15 to 20 percent of people were buying luxury goods in airport shops and and meanwhile all the airlines are pulling the trolleys off the planes because they're not selling any luxury products and yeah, I think they were looking at a 2% conversion. So one side's got all these customers, hundreds of millions of customers, potential customers in the form of the passenger group. The other side's got a bunch of shops and things to sell to them. And in the middle, there's nothing. So I thought, okay, well, this, is, this is mad. I've got to have a chat with these guys and let's think about putting something in the middle which creates an ecosystem whereby the passenger can be kept within it. Because if you can start the conversation with them at an early opportunity and continue to maintain it through to the, the physical touch points of, of the travel day and then beyond and, and so forth, you've got so many opportunities to present to them potential offerings or luxury products and non-luxury products and and other ancillaries that everybody's going to win within that ecosystem that, that currently exists, but doesn't feel predisposed to particularly talk to each other. And, you know, as you've gathered from my, you know, my, my, my presentation of myself so far, you know, I was, I was particularly keen to challenge this status quo. Um, and one technology was born in, in 2013 to start exploiting and building some of the technologies that we were advocating and had been advocating to others. So actually creating them for ourselves, testing some assumptions. And, and Air Traffics was a product that we conceived, which in many ways could fulfill the need that was being expressed and hopefully encourage both sides of the, um, of the ecosystem, the, the passenger side and the, the retail side, to consider coming together in under some sort of a trusted and safe space umbrella where collaboration could be done in a trusted way and they wouldn't be looking at each other as potential rivals anymore, but as realistic competitors for mutual profit. So, you know, the obvious thing that happens, that has to happen, then you've got to build something and prove it and then take it to the people and say, here it is, what do you think? And we did this you know, off our own backs and we decided that it was worth doing and lots of people gave us very sympathetic hearings and said this could be great. And we built it and tested it and we used a small beta group of online travel agents in, in the north of England and, and, and created and, and installed this, this, this app which would launch opportunities, invitations to passengers which were itinerary specific and create retail opportunities that would enable them to, to, or invite them to choose to buy some retail product at some point on their itinerary, either when they depart a place or when they arrive at a place or any point in the middle. And that would link through to a, a merchant with an online marketplace and a, 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 a transactional capability. And it all seemed great. And that's, uh, uh, that was the, uh, the, the, the foundation of this, this kind of ecosystem. There was a proof of concept, and we managed to achieve 8% conversion on total viewership. 
And when you compared that to what you know social marketing was doing, and you know even the IFE that had some interactive stuff going on on the playing on the seat backs, we were we were easily you know quadrupling the engagement levels and the click through levels. So we proved that people were interested. There was a there was an appetite for passengers to consider buying retail products at an earlier stage in their travel journey potentially when they booked and had received a booking confirmation, whether they were prepared to do it at a point where they were reminded to check in, where they got some loyalty marketing email from their airline. But the airline was, was leading the communication and providing a hosting environment for a travel retailer with an online marketplace. Seemed really sensible, right? So you'd think. Um, and that was the basis of our traffic. So that was the principle behind it. We thought it was pretty smart. And then you take it to the market. And that's where you start to encounter what I think has been a fairly um, traditional blowback um, from a marketplace that is used to doing things in a certain way. And that's where you know, E&K goes from being polite innovator and enthusiastic arm waver in meetings about innovation to being that kind of troublemaker that's causing people to think about things in a way that they've never really wanted to. Um, and the results have been mixed, frankly. Some people have slammed a door firmly in my face because it, it is you know, beyond the scope of the way they want to think about things. And and those are mainly the travel retail operators. And, and I've got a certain sympathy with them because when you're paying a great deal of money on rents to commercial landlords, you want people going in your shops. You don't want the distraction of them going off to the online uh, spaces. And, and, and that's certainly the feeling that I've, I've gained. And, and, and that's true. But brands have been very different. Brands want to reach um, their target audience in a more precise way. They're used to uh, e-commerce and online because they do it outside of travel retail anyway. And they had a similar an expectation that something similar would have apply in our, in, our, in our space and haven't really received it. So direct engagement with brands is easier. Airlines are certainly interested because for them, it's a direct ancillary, ancillary and certainly now, getting some cash in the bank without actually having to spend any is a great opportunity. And so giving me space and time to commercialize the digital and now physical assets is a, an opportunity. So this is a very long way of saying, if you build it, some will come. That's probably the, the, best, the best takeaway that I've, I've got from the last couple of years worth of activity. and. Maybe now as we emerge into whatever normality looks like, some people will embrace that now a lot more with a lot more vigor. And some will probably think that the new normal looks as much as possible like the old normal. And that's fair. Um, but we exist to create an alternative, an alternative way of doing things, which we believe is sensible. It's uh, sensible because it, it promotes collaboration. 
it promotes openness and trust and it keeps a finite consumer base within an existing ecosystem rather than seeing it hemorrhaging to legitimate competitors like Amazon and Ali, where there's a, a compelling offer presented in a, a way that people are now expecting um, to be sold to. So yeah. that's my story. And it's a good one, Ian. And, and being an entrepreneur, it was never easy. And uh, it, it, you know, it takes guts to to do those hard yards and a bit of luck as well to get through those hard yards. But I think, if anything, the pandemic, in a perverse way, has, has um, helped you in that um, I think the industry is much more open um, to staring outside its own silos. Uh, as in the past, and we've seen it. And we've seen the emergence in very recent times of Alibaba and JD.com into the travel retail world, working with traditional travel retailers. So the world is changing. And, and hopefully um, you being a kind of first mover, which is always, which is always hard, um, will pay off. And we, we certainly hope so. Well, we're going to move you on from talking work to having a little bit of leisure and funny and you know we always take our guests off to uh, our resident uh, desert island it has duty-free status of course it's our own version the tripod version of Hainan um, and we're going to let you have a few creature comforts um, to enjoy yourself there so over to over to you Roger. Uh, yeah, so Ian, you're on our desert island and you can take one book or piece of reading to take. So what are you going to take for your holiday? I was thinking about this quite carefully and, and I know the expectation is, you know, I've got to take some serious business reading and, you know, sort of <laughs> five tips on marketing coconuts to the natives and, you know, sort of <laughs> leveraging digital palm tree sales. But no, I'm, I'm, I, I, I would like to take with me... Um, a book by Sarah Winman called When God Was a Rabbit. Fantastic book and highly recommended. And, and the reason for that is it's essentially a book about optimism and family. And, and family mostly that's been fragmented and dis disintegrated over time due to circumstance. And that's obviously certainly going to be true as I'm sat on my, on my hammock on a desert island contemplating these, these things. And and in the end of the story, the family comes back together again, and it and it and it's it's filled and brimming with with hopefulness. And then, you know, I want to kind of have that feeling as I'm reading it that you know sooner or later this kind of desolate existence is going to going to come to an end, and 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 everything's going to be fine again. So, yeah, when God was a rabbit by by Sarah Winman is going to be my book. Sounds good. I've not read it, but I'll uh, I'll definitely look it up. Um, to go with your book, uh, you can choose a music, album, or song. So what music are you going to take to the island? Oh, it's a piece of cake, this one. So it's, it's Eternal Flame by the Bangles. Oh, fantastic song. Absolutely cracking. First, first song at my wedding. And, and absolutely evocative of the most superb memory because my wife and I, obviously, were on the dance floor and I'm looking into her eyes and she's looking gorgeous. And she's, she's singing this. To me. Now, I, I've only seen this on the, the wedding video in recent times, and I got, she's not a great lip syncer, and what's very apparent very early on is 
she hasn't got a clue of any of the words to the song whatsoever. So I'm watching the lips and I'm listening to the music and there's no correlation between them whatsoever. But the sentiments of the song and, and that moment, that moment that was captured in my mind, quite priceless. So yeah, eternal flame for Bangles. When you asked her to marry you on your first day, how long did it take you to get married? About 12 months. I mean, there was planning and, you know, these things. She was a Cheshire, a Cheshire lass. So uh -oh. coming from a Cheshire family, they have to... A bit classy. Yeah, a bit classy. Oh, I punch way, way above my weight. And, and it, you know what? Many, loads of people meet us in Israel and, and they say, they meet us and they, they listen to us talking. And they always ask the same question. How, how come your wife sounds like Queen Elizabeth and you sound like that? <laughs> I, I have the exact same thing. We were in the office this morning and my wife lived 15 minutes away from me in Ainsworth. Right. And uh, the, the, the team said, how come we can all understand her and we struggle with you? And I went, well, she had better schooling than me. So I understand everything you're saying. It's Martin I've been struggling with. <laughs> yeah, he's he known me a long time, luckily. Yeah, we, we have a very good subtitle uh, service yeah. uh, provider, so I'll be talking to him straight after this show for the benefit of most of our viewers worldwide. <laughs> now, the, uh, the next item, I know you don't drink alcohol, so I know it's not going to be from my category, but what duty-free item uh, would you buy from our duty-free store? Well, don't make too many assumptions. I want to be a little bit cheeky. And you're absolutely right. I, I'm a teetotaler. So if I may, I, I want to ask for two items. And I think because the first one is what it is, I'd like to ask for an empty whiskey bottle, probably a high end, a high end bottle, you know, something that, you know, immediately captures the imagination. But it can be empty because I, I'm not going to be drinking the whiskey. But the second item is a, a really top range writing set. Because I'm on a desert island. And, and obviously, you know, I'm, I'm yearning for rescue. So I'm going to have to fulfill some element of my time in a productive way. And I will use the writing set to craft a, a beautiful letter to Stanley Tucci, celebrated Hollywood actor, stick it in the bottle, chuck it in the sea, hope he receives it. And when he pulls it out, it's going to be a request from me for him to play me in the film. Well, and that is my fondest hope. Stanley Tucci playing Ian Kay in the story of a, a confused innovator's life. I, I think it's I think it's a blockbuster in the making. Well, we'll see what we can do, Roger. You and I will talk to our funders and, and investors and see if we can arrange that. Um, do you get do you get that comparison a lot, Ian? Not as much as I'd like. <laughs> You just need, you need my glasses. I'll give you my glasses and then maybe you're, you're on. It was a bit disappointing, actually. I, I was with Tucci in a restaurant a couple of years ago and, and a couple of people came, came by and said, who's that with Ian Kay? And go figure. There you go. There you go. All right. Well, you've been, you've been there on your own for a while, so we're going to fly in some, um, some company uh, for you. Um, we're going to let you have a really great dinner party with three companions, three dinner companions from history or living today, whenever, wherever in the world, um, your choice, who would they be? And rather quickly, why? 
Okay, so I've, I've, again, I've thought about this quite carefully. My first one is, is Yuval Hariri, um, who I admire a great deal. And I, I love the arrogance of the futurist. You know, in years gone by, these guys would be on the telly as, you know, telling you the, the numbers of the lottery. But now you can do TED Talks and be taken seriously as a pro professional prognosticator. And I'm very keen to, to hear his opinions on, on, on the future of, of all things, really. And I think he'd be a great dinner guest. Um, so Yuval Hariri would be my first one. Alongside him, um, and as a lifelong Manchester City fan, I'd have Pep Guardiola, because this is quite thematic, but when he arrived at Manchester City, and we're talking about futures, he gave me a future I never thought as a sports fan I'd ever have, and, and continue to have. But there's also a great deal more to him as a, as a thinker and as a potential future politician in his, his home country. And I'm very interested to hear his thoughts on, uh, on matters outside of football, and also on Yuval's view of, of, of the, real, the realistic approaches that he'll take and, and, and talking about the future. So my second one is, is Pep Guardiola. And my third one is Anthony Bourdain, a, a guy who I admire a great deal and unfortunately didn't have the future that I think people were hoping that he would have. But I admire his presentation of himself, particularly in his travels and in the, uh, the presentation of his travelogues, because he's one of the most accessible and, and was certainly one of the most um, humble guys that had a way of drawing out things from people in their own environment by simply being open-minded to them and being one of them and never sneering or looking down at them, but generally having the most perfect approach towards humanity. And Anthony Bourdain would be my third guest. And, and it, it sounds a bit misogynistic, especially just after International Women's Day, that we've not got you know, anybody else around the table. But I think that as things go, that would make for a, quite a fascinating dinner table conversation. And, and as you've seen, what Bourdain can do with a brisket you don't want to miss. Absolutely. We're going to let you have a, a, a woman at the table. I think you've proven yourself very, very adept at, at, at the chat at the, at the dinner table from an early age in your marriage or before your marriage with your wife. So your wife can come as well. Ian, oh, um, that would be uh, just an amazing dinner party. Um, okay, we've had you on the island. Before we take you back off home where you are on the, on the Mediterranean coast there in Israel. We're going to fly you somewhere in the world for all this hard work you've been doing over the last couple of years, in particular through this rotten pandemic. You deserve a treat. So we're going to take you somewhere in the world. Where would it be and why? I would request, if I may, economy tickets, no frills, to Vancouver, my favourite city in the world. Not been for a little while, but um, having worked with her and never met her, it's a great opportunity to meet Heidi Van Roon. There's the name check, Heidi. Um, her hometown. It gets me a chance to reacquaint myself with my favourite city. And as it's all on you, um, I would be very grateful if you could send me just the one ticket, really, um, 
nice return trip and that would be fantastic. Vancouver is my destination. Uh, great choice, Ian. And being as it is on that, it will be economy, I'm afraid, Roger. Right. Yep. So, uh, um, Vancouver, great choice. My my dad's hometown. Ian, he was uh, wow. he was raised on Vancouver Island. Uh, absolutely beautiful place, and uh, and um, yeah, one of one of the most beautiful and 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 um, nicely multicultural. Uh, places in the world it's got everything going for nature it's got a buzz and it's also got a really laid-back lifestyle so great choice Ian you've been great fun um, provocative and candid as as, as always uh, but very uh, humane in your views on life and and, and uh, I, I really have admired your story you've had the guts to to go for it um, and, and to speak up and I don't think that's ever going to be taken away from you a man that convinces um, his future wife to marry him on the first date, Roger. Um, that's some individual, I suspect. 100%. It took me eight years. So, Ian, you <laughs> big admiration. So, look, the jury's still out. There are still some saying that it'll never last. So, um, you know, I'm in it for the long game. All right. Ian Kay, it's been great to have you with us. We wish you all the best with the business going forward. And... Uh, Stay well there in Israel. I hope the situation continues to improve there in terms of COVID as it has um, and will continue to be so. And that Disneyland of a country that you're talking about will continue to be right at the cutting edge of uh, technic technological and other advance. Ian Kay, thanks for being on Tripod. Thanks, thanks so Ian. much for having me. Thanks very much indeed, guys. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Well, Roger, you and Ian, two northern lads. Who would have thought you would have gone down your your very uh, diverse paths in life from from where you all started? So it was great listening to to those anecdotes uh, about your original roots. Yeah, it's great. I didn't know Ian was from the same neck of the woods as myself, so great to see he's gone to the Middle East as well, like I have. Uh, Dubai for me, and obviously Israel for him. Great to see him doing so well. Obviously, at the top of his game. And he's definitely someone I'm going to be reaching out to. Um, what's really interesting is we had Manishi on uh, from Voiceback Analytics a few weeks ago. And the amount of messages, I must have had seven WhatsApps, Martin, um, saying, oh, can you pass me Manishi's details? I'd like to reach out to him and work with him. So I've not caught up with Manishi, but I hope, Manishi, if you're listening, and I hope some work's come your way. And the same with Ian, I think, you know, if people are looking for analytics, um, around you know the area that he works on which is essentially connecting um passengers with either airline operators or uh travel retail operators that technology space he's got a real niche in there you're right he's very um you know very out there on uh, social media on linkedin and it's great to see and um he had some great stories and i think we could have done two or three hours with him but yeah i really enjoyed it martin yeah, I think he, he tells it like it is too. He cuts through all the baloney. And so if you get Ian K, you get somebody who knows his stuff. Um, he won't tell you what you want to hear. He'll tell you what you need to hear. So really good. All right, Roger. Well, look, it's been great to be with you. Um, that brings another episode of Tripod to an end. I'm Martin Moody. See you next time. See you next week.